You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Welcome to episode 12 of the Cool Collaborations Podcast. This time around, I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Carrie Graham. Carrie is one of the co-founders of an Australian organization based in Sydney called Collaboration for Impact, which is working to support systems-level change. Now, this is incredibly important and interesting work because it's dealing with issues that are created by the system itself, about making change that is bigger than any one organization or group. So our discussion isn't as much about facilitating collaboration for a project, but supporting collaboration at a level where there are few other ways of accomplishing such large-scale changes. I think you'll enjoy this look at collaborations from this higher-level systems perspective, and also to hearing some of Carrie's stories about how this type of work unfolds on the ground. Please enjoy. Hello, Carrie. Are you there? I am. Hello, Scott. How are you? I'm fantastic. Where are you joining from today? I am joining you from Gadigal land, uh, which is the Aboriginal and traditional owners of the land of Sydney, Australia. Oh, very nice. So can you introduce yourself as if you were just meeting somebody for the first time? Like what's your kind of go-to introduction for yourself? Hmm. So I'm Kerry Graham. I live on Gadigal land with my partner and my daughter. And I'm incredibly lucky to work with initiatives that are seeking to change the way the system works for the children and families in, in their place or across Australia. And so I travel this beautiful land helping communities address really significant problems like poverty, development of vulnerability, access to services and you know, increasing the decision-making power of families about um, and communities about the way their children grow up and thrive. So is that, that organization is what you're calling Collaboration for Impact, is it not? Yes. So Collaboration for Impact is a nonprofit. We've been around about uh, just on seven years now. So in the, in the scheme of change, we're young, but we have learned an incredible amount over the last seven years. So I'd like to get into Collaboration for Impact maybe in a second, but I'm curious can you give me a sense of what your background is? So how did you get to this place and this line of work, if you want to call it that? Yeah. So I, very briefly, I am a lapsed lawyer. So I um, was a criminal law specialist and I represented only children. And I really believed that helping children strengthen their voice at a time when they need, you know, needed it most, when they're in front of the court, was going to be my lifelong and becoming a lawyer once you sort of become a competent lawyer I guess really for me became a lived experience of being a tour guide in a system that was highly predictable so I would meet a young person I worked for Aboriginal Legal Service so there was an Indigenous young person usually they were incredibly scared and I would talk with them about what the allegation was and why they were there and after a while, I could pretty much predict in my own mind the outcome. As long as I could give my best, I could pretty much predict the outcome. And that became a very impotent feeling because what I saw after many years of being a criminal lawyer was I would 
meet a child and 18 months to meet two years later I would meet their younger sibling or their younger cousin two years later again and you would realize from the experiences of those young people and their court reports that almost nothing was changing for their families or their communities and they were born into disadvantage and poverty and what I was working with was the symptoms of that and I just felt incredibly impotent in my role and so I left becoming a lawyer and I've since then I think I've been on a long-term learning journey about first how do you improve service delivery to better respond to young people and then from there how do you create a system or systems that actually are built around children and young people thriving. So how does collaboration for impact how did it evolve? I, I can see how it evolved from that impetus, but what can you describe collaboration for impact maybe in a bit more detail so people have a sense of how you took that feeling that you had and turned it into you know, what collaboration for impact is? So collaboration for impact, we're a nonprofit with a, a vision that has really remained unwavering since the beginning, which is to contribute to creating more inclusive an equitable society in Australia so that people, place and planet thrive. But our role and in service of that vision, our role and our purpose has changed over time. So in the beginning, we were very much born from, I think, if you like, a a need or a failure in the system, which is funded organisations and governments were very poor in terms of experience or skills around how to collaborate, how to come together on the things that ne- where change was needed and it was beyond the boundary or the mandate of any one organisation or any one sector. And so we, the organisation, if you like, was born out of wanting to support multiple organisations and people come together to work on the issues that no one, no one organisation could achieve on their own. So we, can, we, we were born out of collaboration and we developed over time to see that many initiatives can have organisations and people come together and build skills to collaborate. But if your mindset, if your belief around how change happens is what we need is better services or more services, then the whole change agenda is about service improvement and service integration. And you can get a degree of better outcomes for children, young people and families through that work, but you're not going to get transformational change. And so a few years into supporting many initiatives across Australia who had rallied around collaboration for service delivery improvement, we started to try and say, well, what's the next horizon and explore the next horizon? And that really was into systems change where you're working with other interventions beyond service delivery, but you're also really working to redesign the way the patterns and behaviours in the system support all work against the shared outcomes, the outcomes that everyone's working towards. So... In the beginning, we were capacity builders for collaboration for large-scale change, and now we are much more about wanting to create a movement of leaders and organisations that know how to improve and redesign systems. The word that comes to mind is like, wow. (laughs) I've worked with with organisations and know sort of a 
at least I have a sense of how difficult it is just to get one organization to think about collaborations. How do you how do you sort of start a group of organizations, I guess, down that road of thinking collaboratively for a very large scale change or a you know larger than one mandate? Because that seems like it would be very difficult to do. So we over time we've really observed sort of I guess four pathways or four narratives about how collaborative work and collaborative systems change work tends to start. So I think the most common one is probably one around where there's a group of people, usually from different parts of the system, so um, from citizen leadership or cultural leadership or service delivery in government, for example, and they've known each other for a long time and somehow they, they reach a realisation or they come to a point in their work at a similar time where they're saying, God, we have been working for change in this place for 10, 20 years and I've put everything that I have and my organisation has into this and I would have expected better, more change. I would have expected better outcomes for, for children and families here as a result of all of that work. And so they come together out of almost like a consensus that says we just can't keep doing what we've always done. We've been stuck in that path and actually I don't know what we need to do differently. All I know is we can't keep doing what we've always done. So it's sort of this slow burn dissatisfaction with the status quo and a small group of people who share that come together. So that's one path in. The other path's in a crisis. So another path is a crisis where you've got something that's happened. So in Australia that's very often natural disasters, flood, fire, in the more, more in terms of social outcomes, it might be consistently really poor outcomes, particularly for children. Very sadly, it's sometimes things like a cluster of suicides and it may be, you know, the number of young people who are caught in the criminal justice system where people are now saying this is no longer acceptable, this is urgent, we need to do something different. So there's a real fire in the belly for change. Another pathway in, the third one, is self-determination. And this is really the leadership and unique contribution of Indigenous First Nations uh, leaders in community where they are saying we know the solutions because we know our community and the solutions that are in play in our community, they're not fit for purpose, they're not the right fit for our people or our place. And so there is a, a renegotiation of power that has to happen because the existing system, if you like, the mainstream system is prepared to try something different, which is First Nations solutions, in order to allow for self-determining futures. And then the last one, the fourth one, which is more and more common, is funders require it. (laughs) So I'm not sure if it's always the most productive start, but it is an incredible lever for change when the, the usually government and philanthropic funders who are supporting a place or, or an issue for change basically require organisations and other leaders, cultural and community leaders, to collaborate in order to receive funding. And we're seeing more and more of that in Australia. Would that fall into the kind of category of like even some of the, the investing type community looking for uh, what you would call it ethical type funds that kind of thing 
I think the more mature community, mature in terms of their understanding of collaborative change and also renegotiating power, they are becoming much more creative in the way that they raise funds to support long-term change work and that includes reinvestment models. It also includes attracting sort of uh, ethical social investment models. But what we're seeing is that that is usually once initiatives for change are more established and I guess in some ways more able to evidence the change that's happening, that this way of working is, is effective, but also they're much more sophisticated in the way they engage funders. They, they engage funders as partners in the change, not hands, you know, hands off or, or arm's length funders. Can you give an example of a change that you've worked through, maybe through collaboration for impact as just a way to illustrate, you know, for people who are listening, what kind of a real envisionable thing of what, what you're talking about? What's a good example? Real life example. Absolutely. I'll be brief because I can get carried away with these stories, but I think <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about two. So the first one is a community in far west New South Wales, which is the largest state in Australia. And this community, its name is Burke. And the Aboriginal leaders, First Nation leaders in Burke had been coming together for many years to build the conditions for more unified First Nations leadership and more, more influential First Nations leadership. And they had done that over, as I said, a long period of time, but also through a number of different strategies and engagements, particularly with government. And they had reached a point in their, if you like, their development as a community where they had formed a tribal-based leadership structure to bring shared decision-making in an equitable way across all of First Nations clan groups in that community, which is rare. And they had an extraordinary vision for change that they called Marinooka, which means to care for others in one of the tribal languages. And this vision was saying encompass children, young people, men, women, elders, community health. It was huge. But the real urgency for change is that one in five of their young people was in custody, was in detention on any given day. And when the community reached out for support or for, for partnership, we visited that community a number of times and town hall meetings were being convened and there were a huge diversity of people from the community, including across the generations, the young people to elders. They had um, service providers, government businesses all in the room calling for change. And so they really, they were, um, they taught in terms of a learning exchange, collaboration for impact weren't a huge amount for this community because when we arrived, the readiness for change was so high and it took years to build and we arrived when it was really ripe for change. And in many other communities that we work with now, it's building that readiness that we're involved with. The First Nations leaders had done an extraordinary amount of work in building readiness. So there was a real sense around the leaders, the local leaders, felt like the leaders that sat outside their community who were predominantly service providers in government had access to all of this information and data that they didn't have. 
So the whole initiative, if you like, formally started with a request for data that was visually mapped across the life course. So from a child and they're conceived all the way through to 25 and, and a little and actually onwards, we mapped their outcomes on, across the life course around health, education, income, you know, their, their access to services, their engagement with the criminal justice system, their engagement with drug and alcohol, mental health, these sort of things, so that, that the community could was resourced with understanding what are the, what is the data, what are the outcomes currently being enjoyed by children, young people and families. And we hosted community conversations for many months and we trained local people on how to host conversation and use this data pack. It was one sheet. And the questions weren't about what services do you need, but where are the strengths of this community that can be applied to changing these outcomes? And most importantly, where should we prioritise our efforts? And so all of this data and insights from families themselves and from, from others in community were collected and very, in a way that was ex- extraordinary to be a part of, the, a, a large tribal council meeting was held over two days, a sit-down meeting, where all of these insights had been collated and the data that was there and then the research to sort of say with these types of priorities, these are the types of strategies you could consider. And out of that two-day meeting became a very clear mandate for change from tribal eldership. And a strategy was born called Safe, Smart, Strong, Growing Them Up, Safe, Smart and Strong. And that process took 18 months. And what was in place at the end was a community-owned and led strategy for change that completely aligned with the desired outcomes of government service providers, philanthropy, business, but it was Aboriginal-owned. And since the strategy has been in place, Obviously, there was a whole bunch of direct action happening alongside strategic development, all these test and try experiments about how do you actually create these changes, but it was clear. So what was, what was learnt was these are the set of experiments we're now going to try or the set of test and tries, we call them, that we're going to run over a period of time and every, we had a huge amount of engagement. Um, the, the Indigenous leaders had, had run a process where now almost every service provider, government, department and family were involved in the change process. Now, that's hard to achieve. It's also even harder to maintain. But over time, when you run a set of strategies that work, you do more of them. And when you run a set of strategies that don't work, you've got to stop them. And, you know, you've got to adapt quickly. So we were supporting them with real-time data loops, facilitation of learning, um, shared decision-making processes so that the activity set was constantly being honed and iterated. And now KPMG have done a report on the impact, you know, domestic violence rates, significant reductions, repeat domestic violence rates, extraordinary reductions. Drop significant reductions in all five top five of offence categories for children and young people and young adults. Calculated the number of bed days in custody that have been saved by this community effort and quantified at $3.1 million a year. This is a community that's 3,000 people strong. So, you know, these are this that, that change process is now and it's formally in its sixth year, having had 
a decade of readiness building, but it's become one of the leading examples of collaborative systems change work in Australia. And it's now quite well documented. It's clear that collaboration played, you know, was the central tenant, I guess, of, of what was happening. And I just want to try and tease out sort of how did that, it started as Indigenous leaders bringing government into the room. Is that how it started? And then did it just continue as uh, everybody in the room working together towards a, towards a common goal? How, how would you describe the collaborative portion, the role it played, I guess? Let me come at that first structurally. So in the beginning, the work was, and we weren't involved in this work, but the work was around building shared tribal leadership, clan-based leadership. Once that was in place and the, the strategy emerged, Save Smart Strong, the First Nations leadership were extremely clever at building leadership at every level of the system. So in the beginning, what that looked like is they, they went out outside their community and they, they built a group of sorts of champions, you know, the, the National Children's Commissioner, the Ombudsman for First Nations people, big corporations that were involved in the community, Aboriginal Legal Services. You know, they built a strategic advisory group that had a, a Sydney power base, the, the Governor-General for the state, uh, people like that. So they had influential people that were connected to the community. This community is very remote, 800 kilometres away from the city. And so they, they had a group of people that were influencing at the, if you like, at the formal end of power. They then said locally, okay, these are the safe, smart, strong goals. And they basically said, okay, who has got a stake and uh, a mandate to work to improve outcomes for very little children? So they gave a, a working group, if you like, these are your goals from the Tribal Council. These are the goals the Tribal Council has set for the outcomes that are the desired outcomes for children. And so that working group was tasked with those achieving those goals. And the same with they built working groups across the life course, 8 to 18-year-olds. And interestingly, they built a working group around the role of men in community because they saw that this was a leverage point that if men took up, were more connected to their culture, took up more influential roles in the lives of children, particularly other young men, that this would be a, this would create the conditions for change for children. So they still had a strong focus on women, but they realised they needed to prioritise the role of men in community. And then they had a, basically a group that was all of the government departments that had a regional accountability that included Burke community. So they, they structured the Burke Tribal Council, four working groups and this influential group of champions, and they really worked those groups. The Tribal Council was the final veto in every decision. The working groups got together in the beginning every six weeks and they ran these test and tries. Okay, we need to improve engagement of young mothers going to prenatal care how, how what are the five different things we're going to try in this next six week cycle so rapid cycles of testing and trying with data to back it up with eight to 18 year olds what are the top five offenses the first is breach of bail how do we get young people what are the four things we're going to try in this six weeks to reduce the breach of bail rate which one of those works let's do more of that with the role of men 
what are the five things we can do to bring men together and um, strengthen their cultural leadership and their desire to mentor young men. So you could see these highly structured, rapid test and tries, bringing the data, and then out of that, um, these cycles of learning, constant learning, emerged a clearer set of effective strategies. And then those strategies become more solid. Those working groups go out and seek investment for those strategies. Some of them are now part of the way the system works in birth. All of those things were being, any blockages were being channeled upwards towards the strategic steering committee and people with lots of influence and power were then tasked with, we've got this blockage in this service provider or this government department or in our own thinking, come and help us get rid of this blockage. So really good structuring for the work and really good use of data and learning. You said you had a, a second example. I'm curious to sort of see how the second example highlights this sort of collaborative systems change work. Yeah, so I think the second example may, in a way, certainly in Australia, be a more well-trodden path, which is um, a group of, um, so this is a country town in Victoria called Mildura, and the local council, this is a town of 40,000 people, Local council and service providers had been coming together to work on shared issues for a very long time. And in fact, they had commissioned a university to produce every five years like an indicators report of the health and well-being of children, young people and families in their community. And what they saw is that I think on the third year, the third, sorry, the third, fifth the third report at uh, each one five years apart, so 15 years in, that actually the indicators weren't moving very much at all and yet they had been partnering around shared issues. But it had been, if you like, quite um, service delivery informed, partnership-based work. And so they thought, okay, well, this is clearly not enough to change the outcomes. So they began having conversations with other service providers about, well, what could we do differently? And they learnt, you know, they read some of the collective impact literature and case studies and and they really started to explore whether there was interest and readiness to work in a much more strategic, collaborative way, not, not around issues or projects or programs. And there was appetite for that. And so at, 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 a, at a similar time, there was a, an inquiry going on nationally in Australia around the use of ice or methamphetamine. And in Mildura, there was a very strong narrative that ice was the big social problem. And it was, it was uh, the, in fact, the national inquiry went to that community. And so the, the story was, the dominant story became ice is our problem. And so when they sat with service providers, that was the narrative. But when they sat with families, completely different story was happening about what they saw as the aspirations and needs of children, families in Mildura. So a group of people got together and said, okay, let's really understand what is the story. Let's hear the narrative from families themselves. And they, they ran focus groups and surveys and consultations with 1,600 people across their community. And they heard a completely different story. And then they, when they 
codified this story and, and tested it to make sure that it was accurately reflecting what they'd heard. They then took that story from families to service providers and governments and they managed to change the narrative that this the community's reason to mobilise was not around a drug, it was around children. And that shift in narrative and therefore purpose was incredibly powerful. And they pulled together, you know, the voices of these 1,600 families and they became the primary input into determining a shared strategy, which is called Hands Up Mally. And they documented that strategy around, uh, again, um, quite informed by the life course. This is what we're doing for young children. This is the outcomes we want to um, achieve for young people. And that was very much around our self-determination, so young people-led change. And we want for our community more community members helping community, not service providers. So a real how do we build community resilience and um, community sort of a sense of civic participation, neighbours helping neighbours, families helping families. And so they have done similar things. They have uh, built a leadership table that in the beginning was very focused on service providers and governments, but they built a second leadership table of citizens. And they built, over, over a period of time, they built um, the capacity of that citizen leadership group to work together and actually bring the voice of the community itself to the table and they joined those two leadership groups into a much more powerful sort of table for change. And so they, they have a, their original focus, their first focus was on children under age and they took their community through a collaborative systems mapping exercise. It was extraordinary. Everyone that had a stake in children under eight years of age was brought together not to talk about aspirations or needs because they'd heard that but to map how does the system currently work for children and families of that that age. And so through that different lens of seeing how we can create change, out dropped these really clear priorities for change. Um, And now they're doing the same with all the people who have a stake in, in young people. They're doing collaborative systems change mapping as a way to determine what what activities they focus on collaboratively. So um, they're yet to map their impact. They're a bit younger in time than Maranooka over in Burke, but they have used collaboration and systems thinking as the key inputs for their change agenda. It seems like a lot of these these initiatives you're talking about they're certainly not short. Like they're they're not something that you kick off and you know six months later you're like you're putting a gold ribbon on it. How does a community maintain its momentum in this kind of a large systems change? It seems like there's the potential for people to get tired, people not to, to kind of dwindle off in interest. How, does the, how do you counteract that or, or how does that, first of all, does it show up like that or are people pretty keen and then how do you address it? Yeah, so there's, uh, there's a few things to say about that. I think the first is, a group of people who come together to to start these processes and often, you know, provide the enabling support. It's often referred to as backbone support. They really have to get an understanding quite quickly that there are you're working on three time horizons: short term change, medium term change, and long term change. And you need to be running engagement and activities 
around all three because in every community there is a group of people who are saying we need action now and you need to be able to mobilise those people and if you like support those people to take up action within a larger frame. And so every collaboration in the early days needs early wins to show that this way of working, working collaboratively, delivers results. So people who are driven to, to act, uh, they bring the urgency and they're incredibly needed assets and um, strength of the collaboration in the early days. There's also a group of people who are, who are saying, we don't need to act, we need to learn before we act because acting before you learn is a, is a pattern in the system that is constantly repeated where we, we're too reactive, we're too short-term. So this is where some of the examples of Maranooka are around taking five months to, to resource families with, a, with you know, a life course data map and say to them, what do you think should be happening and where should we prioritise? And the same in Mildura, you know, 1,600 individuals and families engaged with around their diagnosis of what, what's happening for their children and, and in community. These are the activities in that midterm, that midterm sort of change process, but they are asking people to think about priorities over the long term. And once those priorities become known, they become the, the shared agenda. So at all times, you've got to be working at the short, medium and long to, to keep people engaged and that, that it, so it smells different, feels different and is different from the current way of working, which is very linear, programmatic, short term. And then the second thing I think is helping people understand that collaborative systems change unfolds over time in it's not a linear process, but there are generally um, known movements or phases of the change. And so understanding where you're at now and how to do the best work possible in this phase is so important. And then having an eye to work, what's, what's the work of the phase that's coming because you'll always have people who are ahead and want to move faster so they can start build, building the conditions for the next phase. And you're always enrolling and recruiting people into the current phase of work. That never ends, that work. You're constantly enrolling new people. So understanding the phases and understanding that you're working in the short, medium and long-term levels of change is critical. And we have built an online learning platform that speaks to those phases and speaks to the different time horizons so that if you are leading or playing a leadership role in this way of working, You've got an online resource that can help anchor you because you're holding multiple strands of work all the time or multiple frames of the work, depending on who you're speaking with or engaging with. And what's the, what's the platform? The platform is called Platform C, which is platformc.org is the web link. And it's a free accessible platform for anyone doing this work. So I asked that question because I'll put a link to Platform C in the show notes so that people can access it. Do you see a change in so the leadership or the people that, that start these collaborative change efforts, the backbone, as you call them, do they often change throughout a process or is it pretty standard to have the visionaries, I guess, of the change there throughout? I'm, I'm just curious if there's an evolution in that space, the leadership, the backbone space. Yeah, so... 
we look at the leadership for the change as people who take it's two types of leadership if you like there are the people and organizations that are drawn to the leadership table and they are the decision makers they set the strategy they mobilize the system around them in order to achieve the shared goals that group needs that leadership table needs a core group of people that stays the course for, uh, definitely for the first five years. The, the leadership tables, some of them are 10 people strong, some of them are 30 people strong. So you need a core group that provide the anchor and maintain the vision. But there is a lot, you, you want that table to recruit new people and have space for growth. It's a balance between consolidating and stability and also constantly allowing for new leadership to, to emerge. The second layer of leadership is backbone leadership, and this is usually a small group of people who are the enablers of the work. They're not the doers of the work. So they convene people, they bring people together in, in highly effective collaborative meetings um, or gatherings. They, they gather the data and that fuels the learning. They're very good at enabling learning and shared decision-making. They run the communications. They often are running the shared measurement system. So that, that you want change and growth in the leadership table, your backbone team is sort of you know anywhere from three to nine people in strength, in size, depending on the size of your community. It's important that there's good continuity, but you need a different skill set in the backbone as the initiative evolves over time. So you do tend to get a group of people in the backbone, people that are stayers, and then a group of people at turnover or change as the initiative evolves it makes makes sense too because the maturity and the skills required just like any change initiative well you know small scale change initiative everything evolves everything is kind of a moving target and so you need sort of a different skill set showing up at different phases yeah in the beginning you need a strong focus on engagement you know as you mature you need a much stronger focus on facilitation skills and data you know, and then we see a lot of backbones as they are becoming sort of at that three, four year mark. They're coming together as backbone teams and sometimes with their leadership table to become much more power literate. So how do you re intentionally rebalance power in in the process of change? And uh, leadership tables and backbones that do that work tend to be able to move with more certainty and speed because they're they understand the dynamics that are at play. It's always the dynamics that prevent collaborative work from being impactful. It's not actually the strategies or the activities because often they make a lot of sense, the strategies and activities. It's actually getting people to align to them. That is the hardest work. So let's let's tease that apart a little bit because I'm curious about the the power dynamics in that I'm, I guess where my curiosity lies is given some of that power is at least as I understand it, is sort of institutional power. It's kind of, you know, bequeathed, you know, government, that kind of thing. Can you give me an example of how you start to balance something like that out? So a lot of this work is relationship-based. So in the early days of a collaboration, it's, it's bringing different parts of the system together. So shorthand, bringing the institution, the formal parts of power, the powerful parts of the system together with, if you like, the informal parts of the system and 
running experiences and processes where they directly see the value that each other brings. So in communities or in or in issues where there's huge amounts of distrust between the informal and formal power in the system, you know that can be that, that it can be really high stakes bringing those people together because they've got years of history and stories of, of, of not trusting each other and having reason not to trust each other. So this is why, you know, process design and facilitation can be really important and fact critical in the early days, is that you're bringing parts of the system together so that people can see that they are bringing a perspective or a knowledge of that part of the system that is critical for me or for, for others. We can't move forward to achieve these large-scale outcomes unless we have that knowledge at the table. So it's a valuing and respecting uh, different types of knowledge and, and how that, where that knowledge sits. And then over time, it's learning to how, to, how to blend and then leverage that knowledge. So wh- how, did you, how do you do shared sense-making or shared diagnosis when you come from such vastly different worldviews or, or different parts of the system? So a lot of that is trying to equalise power through respecting and valuing different types of knowledge. Later in initiatives for change, when you are trying to really align people to an agreed set of goals and some strategies that are showing results, this is requiring organisations and usually the institutional part of the system to change what they do. This is straight adaptation and you need a very strong holding environment to get people to adapt when they're under public scrutiny so these are when the trust and relationships become critical because you might be asking services for example to change their the way they deliver services to hire different people to actually try new services or operate at different times In some extreme cases, you might be asking services to repurpose themselves or even close. And with government, you might be asking governments to fund differently, to share their power or to move out of the very dominant decision-making role they're playing. And so when it comes to actually those changes not just being called for but being realised, being actioned, you need the holding environment or the, the container for change, whatever you call it, the trust, the relationships, the scrutiny, the shared accountability to be able to affect those changes. And so much of that is relationship-based and understanding influence and power dynamics. So it seems like it would be kind of a slow build-up, like you, you ease into it mm. and start to be, it's something that is built over time and it's another reason these projects take a long time, right? Because you're building trust over that whole period. Yeah. And, you know, you can, so while I agree with everything you just said, then Scott, you can be and must be working on smaller early wins the whole way along. So people can tangibly see others working together in ways that are driving results. They might be at a smaller scale than what is being asked for, but it's proof that this way of working is worthwhile and should be scaled up, including into the sort of bigger changes in the system we were just talking about then around service reform, 
changes in funding and government decision making, all because you're aligning, changes in power dynamics, power relationships, all because you're aligning to these shared goals. Is this approach, I mean, the examples you referenced were kind of around community, youth and health and, and those types of things. Is it more suited, this large scale system change to those kinds of, I guess, human human focused problems? Or would you say it could be applied, say, to you know, environmental problems or other types of things like that? Is it how, how focused is this kind of a, approach? Absolutely. It can be applied to environmental and sustainability challenges. The examples I'm giving are a reflection of where we've come from as an organisation, more in like social justice, but increasingly we're being asked to provide advice and support to environmental initiatives and land use. I mean, that I also look at that as environmental, but, you know, food security, those types of, that are very connected to place, but um, are way beyond sort of the, the outcome set we're used to working with. And what that's taught us is that in a way, this way of working is agnostic to the issue because so often you start with the issue where people have urgency and over time you will see the issue broaden and then over time you'll see the issue narrow again and broaden again and narrow again. And really it's about learning the craft or becoming a master of collaborative systems change work on the issue that that has the most urgency for that community at that time and staying that course long enough to get outcomes. So this way of working is applicable to any complex challenge. That's what we've learned. Excellent. Do you have time for a few, just a few kind of rapid fire, sort of maybe short answer type questions? I have three. Yes, I do. Yeah. So I always ask for book suggestions. And I'm curious, what's a book that you would typically give as a gift or that you would highly recommend? So that, I'm reading a book at the moment that I haven't finished, but it's so incredibly heartwarming. It's called Humankind. And it sort of reflects what we've been talking about, Scott. I would I would give this as a gift to anyone. It basically the premise is humans are fundamentally decent, and the stories we tell ourselves are wrong. And it's incredibly evidence based, and it is so hopeful for the future. I'm going to have to to uh, look that up and add it to my list. For every uh, guest I have on the podcast, I seem to add at least one or two books to my pile. I can imagine. <laughs> I add uh, add books way faster than I can get through them, it seems. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. It seems like this would be fairly, I won't say difficult work, but it certainly would be work that you invest a lot of yourself into. And what I'm curious about is what practices do you use to sort of decompress and, and pull yourself back uh, to yourself to rejuvenate? That is a great question because to me there's a, complete correlation as I've over the years that I've gone deeper into this work I have needed to spend more and more time in nature and those two things are completely correlated for me so as a family we bought a very clapped out camper van and we get in that camper van pretty much as often as we are able including the weekends and just get out into nature away from I guess the the demand that the mental and emotional demands of of the of the work but also to reconnect with 
what it's all about, like purpose and planet. So that's one. And the other one is cooking and music. (laughs) Cooking and music, well, especially the cooking part is, well, maybe more the eating part is certainly a big a big one on my uh, on my rejuvenation list. Yeah. I have to say it chocolate is one of those things that it's never far. Let's put it that way. Oh, I share that too. I share that one too very much. <laughs> that was all I had for questions today. I wanted to say thank you for taking the time. I know you're just back from holidays and this was a, sort of a deep dive, you know, right out of the gate, but I do appreciate you taking the time and I hope that we can talk again soon. Scott, I have really enjoyed the conversation. I can't think of a better way to start my working year than just to sit and talk about the importance of the work and its development. So (laughs) um, can I say thanks as well? Absolutely. Thank you very much. My conversation with Carrie today was so much fun and so inspirational. It was the kind of conversation that reconnected me with some of the reasons why I think collaboration is critically important. I've seen the kinds of results that can happen when people collaborate on a problem and how jazzed up they can get when they start to work together and see those results. But Carrie is talking about tackling the big problems, the ones that can change lives and can really make the world a better place. For much of my collaborative work, collaboration has been just one of the ways for achieving success. I might say it's the best way, but my point is that there was a choice about whether to collaborate or not. For the kind of systems change that Carry and Collaboration for Impact is supporting, I don't think there's any other way to achieve those big results. It really gives you something to think about. What an absolutely brilliant conversation. Thank you, Carry, and thank all of you for listening. Happy collaborating. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating.